invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. And as you open up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, there in the New Testament, I want to invite you to play a little game of word association. Silently in your minds, I want you to ask yourself, what word immediately comes to your mind when you hear the word authority? What word immediately comes to your mind when you hear the word authority? Because typically the first words that come to our mind are reflective of the gut level response that we have to a particular word or a specific concept. So whatever word came to your mind when I said authority, was that knee-jerk reaction to that word authority, was it positive or was it negative? I find that most people's initial reaction to the word authority is overwhelmingly negative. One of the catchphrases of our times, is it not, is question authority. We live in a world where authority, the right to act, and power, the ability to act, are frequently abused. There is increased disillusionment because of the overreach of leaders who fail to live up to their promises. There is growing skepticism thanks to the underhanded actions of business executives, investment managers, and other authority figures that betray the public trust given to them. We remain suspicious of authority, and yet, interestingly, as we remain suspicious of authority, we at the same time long for authentic leadership in our world. As we return to Mark's gospel this morning, Mark in many ways today invites us to learn to believe again. In some ways, the entire purpose, I would argue, of Mark writing this gospel, this account, is to increasingly point us towards the one we have been hoping and longing for, none other than Jesus Christ. And so as Austin Apple comes up, is going to read to us from Scripture this morning, I invite you to hear from Mark chapter 1 in what is the first recorded experience of Jesus' public ministry in Mark's gospel, hear how Mark wants us to see that, demonstrate, that Jesus demonstrates a new kind of authority and power. Hi. Hello. Hmm? Oh, there we go. I'm reading Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 and 21 through 28. It is found in page 694 in the Pew Bible. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Then the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Jesus, according to Mark, arrives on the scene. He goes into synagogue in Capernaum, less of a city, more of a little town. And at probably what everyone just expected to be another worship service, Mark describes Jesus as teaching as one who had authority. It's the first time that Mark will use this word authority, but it will not be the last. Notice here how he goes on to add 
that Jesus was taught as one with authority, but he goes on to add it was an authority not as the teachers of the law. It's important that we understand what Mark is telling us here. The first thing that Mark is trying to show us is Jesus is teaching with authority, even though he seemingly is an untrained layperson. I mean, Jesus comes as one without certification. He comes without any letters of endorsement. He doesn't have any publications to his credit. He doesn't have any students of repute. And yet his teaching on a Sunday morning, or probably not a Sunday morning in synagogue, is persuasive. His teaching is striking a chord. But there's even more than this that Mark wants us to see. Mark wants us to see that Jesus teaches out of his own authority. Very, very significant. Jesus teaches out of his own authority. The teachers of the law, the teachers of the day, when Mark is writing, the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't teach like that. When they taught, they said things like, well, Moses said, or Rabbi so-and-so said, but as you're going to hear later as we go through Mark, Jesus teaches like this. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus teaches out of his own authority. Perhaps maybe to bring this home for us, the significance of this, when Jesus, it said, teaches with authority, that word authority means out of the original stuff. In other words, as I like to think of it, Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus is an original. Jesus teaches about life with an original versus a derived authority. Authority, meaning out of the original stuff. The word author comes from this. So maybe another way to bring home the impact of this is that Jesus is telling the people what God's will is. Jesus is telling about how the kingdom is coming as the author. Jesus explains how the world works, the story of our lives as the author of all life as we know it, as the author of life as we don't realize it can be, as the author of the kind of life we always were intended to live. In other words, beloved, Jesus teaches with the kind of authority and power that we've all been hoping for. Jesus is offering us the sort of answers to the big questions that we're all asking. And Mark doesn't shy away in this brief segment from describing the result of this kind of authority. The people are dumbfounded. They're astonished. They're amazed. Supernatural authority, though, in Mark quickly leads to supernatural confrontation. Doesn't take long. As while teaching, we're told Jesus is interrupted by what's described as a man with an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit, meaning an ungodly presence, meaning a demon. Now, this won't be the first time that we're going to encounter the, de the, the de demonic in Mark's gospel. We're going to encounter the demonic a lot. And so as a little sidebar, um, I'm, maybe we need to stop here and address this because some of us, maybe not you, but somebody around you might be uncomfortable with Jesus' exorcism of demons. Because when we read these kind of things in the Gospels, it raises all sorts of questions for us. It raises all sorts of questions in our modern world about the nature of evil. How do we understand evil? And, and maybe for some of us, why we're uncomfortable is this kind of talk brings back abusive memories of teaching in the church where everything was blamed on or attributed to the devil and his minions. But we need to be careful. That's why we're stopping here for a moment. We need to be careful because we can't let our discomfort lead us, cause us to fail to recognize that the power of evil is real. That the power of evil is alive and well in our world. Someone once said that in spite of all of our modernity, in spite of all of our scientific sophistication, not believing in demons has not eradicated evil in our world. And there's a lot of truth to that. 
So let's be clear, as a little sidebar, what the Bible says about such things, especially as we're going to be here and move forward in Mark. First and foremost, really clear we get this. The Bible says people are not evil. Hear that. People are not evil. It is principalities. It is the principalities and powers of evil that influence and corrupt people. Talk of demons may make us uneasy, and while certainly we won't, don't want to see the devil behind every bush, I think we can all agree. I, I mean, I don't think we can overlook the existence of what the Bible describes as a spiritual dimension to our world, a realm in which forces exist that are opposed to the purposes of God. And in many ways, demonic possession in the Bible ultimately is just trying to express in that time, and, and I would argue still today, how people are held captive from within by forces beyond their control. It describes the experience of being enslaved to compulsions that rob a person of their freedom of choice, that destroy one's health or hinder one's growth, that cut off a person from God and from their community, that alienates a person even from their own soul, their own humanity. And we, as it's described by Mark and other gospel writers or later on in Acts, we, it may seem foreign to us, but let me ask you, is it not possible, don't you think, that the multiple forms of addiction that burden us as persons and as a society, these impulses and habits that debase, that dehumanize, that destroy us, can we not perceive them as being demonic? The manifestations of the power of the demonic can hold us captive in our personal lives, in our social spaces, even to our economic systems. I mean, how many people out there, maybe how many people in here feel powerless or worse, oppressed, trapped in situations and relationships beyond their ability to control or escape? How many tortured or troubled souls are there among us today? Maybe again here, right now, how many tortured or troubled souls are among us today? How many tortured or troubled souls are represented in this room? How many people do we think of as being a tortured or troubled soul in our own lives, our own families how many of us, beloved, are, as the expression goes, still wrestling with our own demons? I guess what I'm trying to say is that while we can't ignore or downplay the reality of the demonic, what's most important is what Mark is revealing to us here. That in the presence of chaos and disorder, before the manifestation of evil in this world, Jesus speaks with the kind of authority and power that stops the nightmare that rescues and releases us from the powers and forces that oppress us. The unclean spirit that Jesus encounters recognizes this power and authority of Jesus. The challenge and threat that Jesus poses to evil when it cries out, have you come to destroy us? But notice the voice confronting Jesus does not address him as someone to be followed. There's a tauntingness there. Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are, Holy One of God. What we often might miss here, it was much more significant then, was the power of naming. What you named your children, how you used names was believed to have a power to it. That if you had the power of someone's name, you could name someone, you had influence over them. So understand what's happening here. The, the spirit, by naming, by naming Jesus is an attempt to control him rather than submit to him. But the irony is that by control, trying to control Jesus by naming him, the demon actually speaks the truth about Jesus. Because this is what Mark wants us to see, what he's going to unveil to us throughout his gospel. Jesus is the great liberator 
who frees us from various captivities, personal and social, under which people feel powerless to control or escape. Jesus frees us from any and all bondage to evil. Jesus is the king. Unlike any earthly king, he exercises authority and power differently. Later in Mark, Jesus will just call it out how his authority and power are different. He will clearly distinguish the authority and power of God's kingdom from the ways of the world. What's hilarious is he'll make this distinction as his own disciples, incidentally, are caught up in a power struggle over who's the greatest. He will stop them and he will say, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It starts here. But Jesus will continue to use his authority and authority not to obtain power, for himself, but to serve humanity. Again and again, his freedom to act will be exercised for the good of others. And so it starts here, but it'll be a repeated, repeated occurrence in the showdown between the authority of God, the power of liberation, of freedom, of sacrificial love, of unconditional forgiveness, of radical grace, in the showdown between the authority of God and the authority of that which is in opposition to God, the power of manipulation, deception, oppression, fear, abuse, and death, in the showdown between the authority of God and the, the powers that are in opposition to God, it's no contest. It's no contest. The power of the kingdom is greater. Jesus is a better king. His authority and power will bring blessing to people, health, healing, and wholeness. And as we see here in Mark, as I pointed out to you previously, not once, but twice, Mark will tell us that the people who witness this authority and power will be filled with amazement. And initially, this would seem like a good thing. This would seem like a positive reaction. But be forewarned as we continue on in Mark. As we journey on through his gospel, being amazed by Jesus' authority and power does not necessarily mean that one follows him. It's one thing to know who Jesus is. That's why we're here. We know who Jesus is. It's another thing. It's also to know about Jesus. That's why we come back, because we know about Jesus and we want to know more. But it is another thing to know Jesus, to be in relationship with him, to learn from him by submitting to his authority and his power. And moving forward, beloved, we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark three responses, three responses to Jesus' authority. There will be crowds. There will be critics. And there will be followers, disciples. And the question for us this morning, the question for us as we go through this gospel is which group do we belong to? The question is, which group will we belong to? There will be crowds. They're already gathering here in Mark chapter one. There will be some in Galilee who just come for the show. Crowds. We all engage crowds. We all know what crowds are like. We've all been a part of crowds. Crowds have a certain di dimension to them. Crowds observe everything, but they rarely engage in anything. Crowd movement is a mass. You can picture one big crowd, right? And crowds move in a mass, and therefore crowds tend to display what we like to call a herd mentality. Groupthink. They travel in a pack, so they think as groups. One has only to look at teenagers, and you know what I'm talking about. No disrespect intended. I was a teenager myself. 
You go to high school and you try to walk around campus and you got to walk around a huge group of students that are walking together. It's like nobody separates. They're all together. You got to like navigate around it. That physical movement also demonstrates mental movement, groupthink. There's not real, honest, personal reflection or inventory in a group because the group just kind of thinks as a collective whole. There's danger in that. Crowds are interested in displays of power. They'll show up for the spectacle. They're looking for the spectacle. But crowds aren't necessarily yielding before the authority that wields that kind of power. And so what we see, what we will see is the crowds in Jesus' day were interested in the miracles. But they didn't get the message behind the miracles. What and who the miracles pointed towards. They were interested in what they could get out of Jesus. But they were not all that interested in what they could give up for Jesus. I like to think that today crowds in the church often take the form of what I like to call do-it-yourself Christians, DIY Christians. They follow the action. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians in the church that like to follow the action, the buzz. What's the, what's the latest in the church? Where's the spirit moving? Who's doing what? What church is big? And how is Christ, how's the kingdom being built? A lot of Christians who want to follow the action, the buzz, they want to follow the trends about Jesus, but they don't actually want to follow the person of Jesus. In our day, another word for crowds is consumers. And we have a lot of consumer Christianity. We even talk about shopping for church. We talk about getting fed. We talk about, you know, if the size isn't there, if it doesn't feel alive to me, you know, if it's not a big church, then I can't go there. And the other word for crowd is consumers because there are people who pick and choose what they want to believe about Jesus. But they don't want to acknowledge his authority and follow Jesus insofar as it will cost them something. They'll always show up for a sale, but they're not going to wait in line if it's regular price. Beloved, are we part of the crowd? See, because Jesus didn't care much for crowds. Let me qualify that so in case you're, you think I'm misspeaking. When I speak of crowds, Jesus had compassion. He noticed the crowds that followed him. He looked upon the crowds and loved them. And I'm not talking about the masses in that way. I'm talking, when I say crowds, I'm talking about the faceless crowd, those who purposefully sit on the fence, those who intentionally remain lost on the sidelines. That's what I'm referring to. And Jesus didn't care much for those kind of crowds. In fact, as you read through Mark, you'll notice he always seems to try to avoid them. And later on, at the very end of our story in Revelation, Jesus will speak of one church that's filled with crowds, and he'll say, you know, that faceless crowd, these people who just want to purposefully sit on the fence, who intentionally want to remain lost on the sidelines, he'll describe them as being so lukewarm, so good for nothing, it'll make them sick. And then he'll literally spit them out of his mouth. Beloved, are we in the crowd? Then there are critics. There will be others in Galilee not who will come out of the crowd, and yet who, despite the revelation of Jesus' authority and power, will refuse to abandon their own personal expectations and opinions. The critics, we all have them, we all know them. Critics take in everything. Critics take in everything, but they rarely accept anything as it is. They engage what is happening, but remain skeptical about what they experience. Critics are skeptical, interestingly enough, about everything except their own opinions. They will doubt everything except their own minds. Critics always have more questions. I just have another question. They always have another proof that they need before they yield or submit. 
And again, I'm not saying that being critical is a bad thing. We need to be critical, but I'm talking about something specific here. I'm talking about critics who, for them, their objections, their proofs, their questions become a badge of honor for them. And when you, that becomes a badge of honor for you, then you become a critic who rarely moves beyond your criticism. Sometimes, you know what I'm talking about, critics just keep asking questions or raising objections as a way of avoiding the truth rather than following it. And so we will see the critics in Jesus' day. It's going to come real quick. The critics in Jesus' day will repeatedly challenge his authority. Again and again, they will question his displays of power, always looking for error, but never acknowledging the results, the impact of what he was saying and doing. And eventually, as we know this story, the critics will move from constant accusation of wrongdoing, the pinnacle of that accusation of wrongdoing, going so far as to say that Jesus has an evil spirit in him. They will move from constant accusation of wrongdoing to finally just casting judgment on Jesus and plotting to kill him. At the end of the day, the critics of Jesus will display no genuine interest in listening and learning from him. Their sole motivation, it would seem, is to maintain the status quo, to preserve their expectations and their opinions, even if they are wrong. Even if they are wrong. Now, we all know that Jesus ultimately forgave his critics. One of the more powerful moments on the cross. Jesus ultimately forgave his critics. But please also note that Jesus also offered them a cautionary word. Jesus pointed out that critics, in refusing to receive the kingdom of God, and he specifically said, like children, to not be childlike, to remain critical and not receive the kingdom as children of God, make themselves unable to enter it. Don't miss the cautionary word here, is that critics can, in their criticism and holding on to that, can actually, can actually Restrict themselves, keep themselves cut off from the forgiveness that God seeks to offer, the blessings and peace of God's forgiveness. Critics can become their own worst enemies. Beloved, are we among the critics? Are we among the critics? We know who Jesus is. I guarantee you, all of us here know who Jesus is. We know stuff about Jesus. But I ask you again, do we know Jesus and here's the thing, and it's okay. Sometimes, me, myself included, sometimes we're in the crowd, and sometimes other times we're critics. That's all right. That's life. But in the end, Jesus calls all of us, every single one of us, to be followers. People who get off the fence, who put aside our personal preferences, our opinions, and our expectations, and engage him as he is, for who he is, and follow his authority and power in our lives and in our world. So the question is, how do we live under that kind of authority, the kind that brings life rather than takes it away? How do we experience more of the presence and power of Jesus in our everyday circumstances? How do we live as followers of Jesus? The immediate answer is that we need to recognize it. We have to recognize when Jesus is speaking and when he's at work in our lives. And the way that we recognize it is noticing the very first words again, and that's why I had Austin read them, that Mark records Jesus speaking. Right at the start, Jesus announces the way of the kingdom. Jesus gives us the lens for engaging everything that he says and everything that he does. The time has come. Repent and believe. The way of the kingdom, the way of recognizing Jesus' authority and power is through repentance and belief. If you have your sermon notes, you might want to take notes on this because I think it's helpful. We previously have talked about 
kairos moments. And if you weren't with us, two quick understandings of time. Chronos time. Best represented like this. Like one big straight line. Chronos time is days, weeks, months, years, the kind of time we measure. This fits because chronos time is the time that just keeps on moving. Big old wheel keeps on turning. Minutes that have just passed us by, we can't go back and get. The second that I just elapsed, I can't get. I can only move forward. This is chronos time, and our lives just continue to move forward. Kicking and screaming into it, they just keep on going. But the Bible also recognizes another conception of time. It's the kind of time that Jesus makes us aware of when he comes on the scene when he says the time is near, and that's kairos time with a K, K-A-I-R-O-S. And one way to think of kairos time is in the midst of our chronos time, all of a sudden, we recognize that Jesus is speaking, that Jesus is doing something. Those two things go together. You'll see it all the time in the gospel, by the way. Jesus speaks and Jesus does. Word and power, they go together. We do a lot of talking and don't necessarily do a lot. Talk is cheap for us, but when Jesus speaks, things happen. You can't separate the two. Jesus teaches with authority. He confronts supernatural opposition. Jesus will speak, things happen and change. So word and power go together. And, it, and those kairos moments are those moments in our everyday lives where we recognize that Jesus is speaking and doing something. Real important clarification. Kairos moments are about our perspective when we recognize that Jesus is speaking and doing something. What I mean is, it's not like sometimes God takes a day off. I'm really tired, you know? Or God goes, I got nothing today. You know, I got nothing we believe in a living God. This is very important. We believe in a living God, a God who is speaking and working all the time. All the time. Throughout creation. Kairos moments are about when we suddenly realize and notice what God is doing all the time, speaking and working. Very significant. It's about our perspective. Not that God suddenly decides to show up, but that we actually suddenly notice. And so, how do we recognize the authority and power of Jesus in our lives, these kairos moments? Through repentance and belief. Jesus tells us we have to repent. This is the lens throughout the whole of the gospel. How do you understand that Jesus is exercising authority and power? Repent and believe. Let me tell you, three quick steps to understand repentance. Repentance is turning around. Repentance is moving in a different direction. And there's three aspects to repenting, to, observe, to seeing that Jesus is speaking and acting. And the first is to observe, to notice. How many of us are so busy? How many of us have a full schedule today and on Monday and Tuesday that right now those things are going in the back of our mind? How many of us have our mind fixated on the ground that we miss so much that takes place in our lives? A kairos moment, repentance is about observing, stopping to notice that Jesus is speaking and that Jesus is doing something. It's noticing where Jesus is at work around us. We observe but we also have to reflect. How many of us are very good at, at faking it in order to make it? You know, you can keep your eyes up rather than down. You see a lot of stuff out of your peripheral vision. You see a lot, but you don't really reflect on a lot. How many of you have been in conversations where someone has talked to you and you said, could you repeat that again? I really didn't hear what you were saying. And you were looking right at them. How many of you were driving somewhere and then you get to the same place as someone else and they go, did you see the accident that happened? You see that and go, oh, I thought I saw something. What was that? We can observe a lot, but that doesn't mean we stop and reflect upon it. Repentance is about noticing when Jesus speaks and works, but it's also about reflecting. Reflecting on God's position in our life versus our position. How close are we to where Jesus is at work? 
Are we near the center? Are we far off? How, how clear are we hearing how Jesus is speaking and working in our lives? Where are we standing in relation to where God is speaking, moving, and acting? That comes from reflection. We observe, we reflect, but we have to discuss. We have to actually talk about it. We have to say it out loud. How many of us see things, maybe reflect on it, but it gets forgotten? But when we say it out loud, when we talk with someone else, did you see that? You know what I just heard? Did you notice that? All of a sudden, it takes on a different level of reality, does it not? Does it take on a different level of awareness? We discuss what we see, what we notice in order to make it real, in order to truly allow change to happen in our lives, to make a course correction. We talk to others who are in the same boat as us in order to verify our orientation to God and our bearings. And we need that not only for ourselves, but other people need that so that, again, we don't miss how Jesus is speaking and working in our lives. Repentance is about recognizing Jesus' authority and power. And you could frame, observe, reflect, and discuss with just one centering question. It's asking ourselves, what is God saying to me? It comes down to this. What is God saying to me? If God's working and speaking and acting all the time, what is God saying to me? When I observe, reflect, and discuss that Jesus is on the move, what is God saying to me? But there's also belief. We repent. What is God saying to me? We also have to believe. And to believe means to trust. To believe means that we put what we think into practice. We put what we've observed. We put what we've reflected upon. We put what we've discussed, what we've answered. This is what God is saying and doing, and we actually put it into practice. And that's why the second centering question for believing is what is God telling me to do about it? I acknowledge that God has shown up. I acknowledge the authority and power of God at work in my midst. I can identify it. This is what God is saying and doing. But now, what is God telling me to do about it? Because remember, God doesn't just speak and go, you know, I just had a word for you. Nothing to do. Just, don't, you know, just something for you. If God speaks, things happen. God speaks, movement occurs, change happens. So what is God saying to me always leads to what is God, God telling me to do about it. And to believe, again, three steps. Belief starts with a plan. What is going in a different direction going to look like? If God's telling me this, what direction do I have to go in? What needs to change in my life and how? If I'm going to live out of my belief, what do I need to start doing and what do I need to stop doing? I guarantee you, if God tells you something and then you know what he's telling you to do about it, it generally comes meaning that you need to start doing something. And if you have to start doing something, you have to stop doing something else. How many of us have in our phones or at home lists and lists of plans? How many of us have lots of plans that we made? Well, I mean, I mean and we're going to get to it. Uh, eventually, we're gonna, it's been 20 years, we're going to get to it. it. Oh, you don't understand. No, no, I'm just, I'm reworking it. The other step in believing is not just a plan, but accountability. We need to, again, put it out there so that it's measurable that we're actually moving forward, that we're actually moving. Jesus often pushes accountability in the midst of what he says. He says, and then there's something that's supposed to be done about it, and he doesn't just say a plan. He doesn't just say, this is what has to happen next. He says, are you going to take that step? We need accountability. Telling people, sharing with them what our plans are, because when we share what our plans are, we have the ability to receive that accountability. This is what God said to me. This is what God's telling me to do about it. Here's my plan. Will you hold me accountable? And it doesn't need to be epic, what we hear God saying to us, what we're supposed to do about it. Oftentimes, I find it's very, very small. And it's the smallest changes that make the biggest difference. It's the smallest changes that are often the hardest changes to make. That's why we like to be grandiose. 
Because if it's big and grandiose, we can't possibly pull all of this off. God's just asking way too much. But if it's like this, God can do that. There's a reason why Jesus talks about the faith of a mustard seed. Beloved, making a plan, being accountable, and the last part is actually acting on it, doing it, exercising our trust by putting our lives in Jesus' hands. And here's the thing. We live in Kronos time. We live in this time that we can't go back and get. We can't know what's going to come next. We just got to keep on moving like being on a conveyor belt in some ways. But what's beautiful about the Kairos moments, those moments when we open ourselves up and we recognize the authority and power of Jesus, Jesus speaking and working in our lives, when we identify those moments, everything comes full circle. Because in the midst of Kronos time that keeps on going on, God creates a space when we yield before his authority and power where we have the space that we need. We're not rushed. We have all the time that we need to truly hear what he's saying, to see what he's doing, and we have all the time we need to recognize what he's telling us to do about it. We have all the time we need to work the circle, if you will. Because God's time for us doesn't run in a straight line. But it loops around, giving us an opportunity to recognize, to, just, to be, have that moment frozen for us of how he's speaking and working in our lives and have that space to be able to recognize what he's telling us to do about it. Notice this in your bulletin. It'll be in your bulletin from now until Jesus probably returns, maybe. <laughs> Kairos card. Explain to you about Kairos. This is putting it in action. What I just talked to you about. How do you recognize the authority and power of Jesus in your life? Recognize the Kairos moments. The two questions are on the back, and my invitation and my challenge to you every week is I don't know what you're going to do outside of this space, but in this time that God set apart, in this time that God gives us, I challenge you, I invite you to answer these two questions. Now, for some of you, this is awesome. Others of you are like, uh-huh, pass. <laughs> Your call. You come here every week, maybe you don't. Maybe you come every other week. Maybe you come once a month, but you come. Let me ask you a question. If you're coming week to week, and you know what? You're praying a prayer, you're singing the songs, you hear the sermon, you come up for communion. I didn't really hear God speak or do it. God's not really telling me anything. I don't feel like I'm supposed to do anything. But you know, I came, I paid my dues, check. Many of us are living in that reality. And if you're sitting here going, you know, pastor, you're talking about all this stuff. I just don't hear God speaking. Let me ask you something. Do you think that that's more a problem on your end or on God's? I mean, do you actually think you're showing up and God's like, I got nothing, like I said. Yeah, I, sorry, man. I, I, or you know what? I'm really overloaded right now, so my list is like this, so I really can, can't do anything right now. No, we don't believe that. We, I, I, we believe that God is speaking and working all the time. Then why are we not hearing God? Why are we not feel God's direction? Maybe because we're not asking two simple questions. And maybe because we're not being willing to actually put something down. You know, I'm not worried so much for those of you who are actually going to fill this out. And, I'm, and I, again, I want to say to you, if you do not fill this out, that's cool between you and God. But don't complain that you're not hearing God in your life. Don't complain. That's like basically, in any other relationship, basically feeling like you're not close to that person, but you never talk to them. You never hang out with them. Man, I feel like we've grown apart. Yeah, you have. Man, I feel like they don't have any time for me. Really? I'm not worried about these two questions. I think most of us will probably take a stab at this. The part that's the hardest for a lot of us is going to be the part at the end in bold. That's why it's in bold, you know, to make it pop. Please be sure to share your Kairos moment with someone before you leave. If I had you, now I'm, I got everybody, oh yeah, right. <laughs> right. Think about that though. 
Think about that. We can share with each other about sports. Bummer about the Dodgers. Maybe yay if we're Angels fans. We could share about the weather. We could share about all kinds of things. But sharing about what God's actually saying to us, that just strikes us as weird. Sharing what God's actually doing in our lives? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Come on. We're in church. Yeah. Beloved. It doesn't have to be epic what God's saying to you. It doesn't have to be all worked out. Some of you are going to be like, well, I have to be precise. I have to know exactly what God's saying. No, no, just put something down. Even if it's just, this is the sense I get. And then what is God telling you to do about it? Put down what you sense. And then guess what? It's in the reflecting. It's in the discussing. It's in the planning and the accountability. Guess what will happen? This will get clearer and clearer and the circle will fill out. And you sharing your Kairos moment with someone else, do you know what that does? Beyond for you, giving you the accountability of the body, the encouragement of the body, it, we actually encourage each other. That I'm, that I'm hearing God speak too, that God's telling me to do something. And you know what you might discover? This is, I know this is crazy. Get ready for this one. He might be telling us the same thing. <laughs> he might be telling us the same thing. Don't say that out loud. Because then people will really freak out. Because then you can't be a do-it-yourself Christian anymore. Beloved, followers understand Jesus. Followers understand and experience the life-saving and life-changing impact of Jesus' authority and power on a level that can never be reached by those standing in the crowd, that will never be reached by those holding the line with the critics. Are we part of the crowd? Are we proud to a fault to be a critic? Or are we disciples of Jesus Christ? Because if we're disciples of Jesus Christ, if we're following him, then it doesn't it doesn't make sense for us not to be asking on a regular basis, what's Jesus doing? What's Jesus saying? And what is he telling me to do about it? We are suspicious of authority, and rightly so. We've seen its dark side. We have seen how it can be used to betray the public trust and how power can be abused for manipulative and self-seeking ends. And we may question authority, but we also must respect authority. God's authority demonstrated in and through Jesus Christ because Jesus' authority is different. Jesus' authority arises from the inbreaking of God our Father's kingdom. Jesus' power is, un, is exercised unlike any other form of power, as we've learned this morning. Through humble service to others, through self-sacrifice for all the world, Jesus' power brings life, healing, wholeness, and freedom. His authority and power is at the service of justice, peace, and love. It's not self-seeking. It's self-giving. And Jesus himself, as we go through Mark, will both question authority, but he will respect authority. He questions unjust authority. And yet at the same time as he will question unjust authority, he will fully surrender again and again to the authority and power of God's kingdom. Why that matters is as followers, Jesus invites us to do the same. As followers of Christ, yes, we should question authority, but we have to yield and respect the authority of God's kingdom. We have to act in and under the authority and power of the risen Christ, which is why Jesus' last words to us before he ascended into heaven, what we call the Great Commission are these, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, that's us, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Again, that's us, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We can't teach if we're not hearing God say anything and if we're not doing anything about it. Beloved, we move in the power of the Spirit. We move with the authority of Jesus and his kingdom and that authority and power is given to us in order that we, we might bring liberation, wholeness, and peace into our lives, 
our marriages, our families, our extended families, our neighborhoods, our jobs, our communities. So as followers of Christ, let's dare to to ask to be open to what God is saying to us and what God is telling us to do about what he tells us. What are the unclean spirits that hold many people in bondage today? If, If you're struggling for a kairos, what are the unclean spirits that are holding people in bondage today in your life? What are the captivities, personal and corporate, in your own life that you feel powerless to control or escape because you are on your own? Where is Jesus' life-giving authority and power most needed in your life? And how can we bring that authority and power of Christ to bear against the powers of darkness, evil, injustice, and inhumanity? I, I could say, I gotta say that, I don't, I, sometimes I, I'm going to say something and you're going to, if you don't think I'm crazy already, this could be it. <laughs> Do you hear the same voices that I hear? Do you hear the same voices that I hear? There are so many voices out there. Voices trying to compete. Voices working hard to squelch the voice of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I hear them all the time. Voices that do not come from people. Voices that come from the spirit of chaos. That come from disorder. That come from hostility. That come from obstruction. I hope I'm not alone. Do you hear those voices? Those kind of voices that are everywhere. They whisper to us. And sometimes, yes, even as we see here in Mark chapter 1, they shriek They shriek in the midst of our lives, but beloved, they are voices without authority and power. They have no authority and power other than the authority and power that we give them. Please hear that. They have no authority and power other than the authority and power that we give them. Jesus's power comes from God, not from human beings. Jesus speaks with an authority not of this world, but of the kingdom. That's why it's so different. That's why it's safe. That's why it's protected. And the good news of God's kingdom is the authority of God come in Christ is life-affirming rather than life-taking. It is the power and the authority to liberate us from sin, death, and yes, demonic forces. Other voices are competing for our attention. Other voices beckon us to follow. Beloved, let's stop listening to them. Because Jesus has rebuked them. Jesus has silenced the spirits of manipulation and abuse in our lives. We need to start paying attention to the voice of Jesus. We need to start following Jesus to live out the beautiful redemption of his life, death, and resurrection. We need to follow Jesus to share the liberating healing, the kind of wholeness that only emerges, only emerges when we speak and act with his voice in his authority and power. Amen? Amen. Amen.